The following teaching is from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat at Trinity Pines. We hope it is a blessing to you. For more information about the men's ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. That's houstonsfirst.org forward slash men. of what might my life look like when I go home as a result of dwelling deeply in and absorbing these truths about who God is and thus who I am. So, Lord, I just pray for illumination uh, of our own lives in this moment. And uh, I pray for changes that are life-giving for us and for everyone who looks to us for encouragement, counsel, guidance, or leadership. And I want to ask you guys, again, if you're willing, take a minute and pray for yourself and ask him that. Say, Lord, please teach me something right now. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I would be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, through a unique set of circumstances, I've been able to spend quality time with Navy SEALs, which is a blast because it's allowed me to do all kinds of cool stuff I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So a few years ago, uh, I was able to go to their base on the West Coast and run their obstacle course, uh, which I was able to do in under 12 minutes, which is the cutoff to become a Navy SEAL. So I felt pretty good about that, uh, that I negotiated the course in under 12 minutes. Thought that was kind of awesome. The, then my buddy who was in the teams, who was there, ran the course, uh, and he did it in uh, six, six minutes. But, um, you know, but he had had more practice uh, and, you know, was a SEAL. So um, that's okay. But uh, I remember the next day when uh, I had to take nine Advil to just, you know, function and then do that again for like the next two weeks, I realized, okay, maybe I'm not built to be a SEAL. Uh, Maybe I'm built to, you know, read books. (laughs) But I still like going into their world and kind of entering the SEAL world. I've been able to enter it and exit. So I I did their East Coast obstacle course, which is just a series of ropes that hang over an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so you basically just do your best to negotiate these ropes 15 feet in the air, and then when your forearms give out, you just plummet. Uh, into failure. And so uh, I did that. Uh, I've been to BUDS. I've been to SQT. I've been to assault school. I've been to all kinds of different stuff and hung out with them in some pretty amazing places. And I've loved it. But there's not a one time that I haven't entered their world. And then when I exit, start to make a mental checklist of things I need to do to feel more like a man. And they never put that on me. They're never doing that to me. They never come up and go, all right, man, let's write a prescription to up your manliness quotient. Here we go. Try these things. They never do that to me. But it's impossible to not enter their world and then exit and go, dude, I just kind of, I got to get some things together to be more manly. And so for a few days afterwards, I'm always kind of mentally struggling with that stuff. Like, I'm like, why have I not learned how to shoot an M4 yet? Like, when am I going (laughs) to get on that? Like, what's my deal? Or like, you know what? Like, what's going to be my first move in a knife fight. Like, I should have that squared away. Like, right now, if it went down, it would be something like, ah, and, and I just, I'm like, that's not the right, come on. Or I'm like, how come I don't know how to fly a helicopter? Like, if it goes down, 
And it's like, there's a helicopter. We got to get out. Like, I'm going to have to look around for a real man to save us. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I never learned how. Like, I'm like, man. And I do that to myself for a few days uh, until I realize, like, if that's the standard of manliness uh, is special forces, then, then that's not right because there's only a few thousand in the world. That can't be the standard of what a man is or else there's not many men on the planet. And so then it leads you to the question, you go, then, then what? What is the standard of manliness? Like, what does a man do? I know what a phone does. I know what a hammer does. What does a man do? What does a man do? What could someone in here do that we could look at him and say, that's what a man does. That's what a man is meant to do. That's what he's built to do. What is it we're supposed to do that we could look at and say, that's what a man does? And the reality is our culture's punted a lot of the cliches about it. Like, if you're a man, you got to be a hunter. And you go, well, you're not necessarily, or you got to be great at auto repair. Uh, no, Lord, help us. I hope not, or I'm in trouble. So there's things like that that you go, okay, not all men have to do that. Our culture's done a great job of saying, no, men don't have to do those things to be a real man. But our culture hasn't been good at the affirmative of, okay, then what does a man actually do? So I remember when I was in college, the movie Fight Club took off because it was uh, a reaction against the feminization of men. And yet the book was like, no, we don't want to be feminized. We don't want to be women. She go, so what does a man do? And the movie had no answer. They just ended with a guy shooting himself in the face and blowing up a building. And you go, I don't think that's the standard of manliness. I don't think that's right. And so as you look at the movie, they go, what's a man, according to Fight Club, a man gets in random fights for no purposes and destroys things. Basically, a man is a boy. And if you look at our culture, that's really been the reaction. I don't want to be feminized, so we become boys. And the world needs men. It doesn't need more boys. And so we got to figure out, then what does a man do? What's a man supposed to do? And I just want to look at two things. There's a lot of ways we could answer that. I just want to look at two things that if we can get our heads around it, we in this room will be a force for good in this culture. And so to understand it, we got to go to created intent. What did our creator intend when he made us? And Genesis tells us that we were made in the image of God. And there's a lot to that, and scholars go different directions on what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God. It's a lot of interesting debate around that. We could spend our whole time debating that. We're not. But one thing I could say is that there are things about God that we are meant to mirror. We are meant to image. We are meant to look like as people made in his image. So I want to look at two things. What did God do that we are meant to mirror or image as God's men? And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, if you notice Genesis 1, 2, it's talking about the beginning of creation, that God created the heavens and the earth. And then as it begins to explain how in Genesis 2, it starts with a negative situation. It says, now the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep. Now scholars agree that all those words have a bit of a negative connotation, that it was formless, void, and there was darkness over the deep. And you look at that and you go, that's not the ideal situation. That's not, that's not a good situation. Now you go, why was it a negative situation in Genesis 1 and 2? The Bible doesn't tell us there. Genesis 1 isn't interested in giving you all the details about creation. Genesis 1 is interested in showing you the God of creation. So there's a lot about how he did things that it doesn't tell us because that's not the Bible's point. The point is to show you what God's like 
through what he has made and what he cares about through what he has made. And so it shows us a God who enters into this space that our text says is formless and void. That word formless means without form, meaning without structure, right? Uh, without order. And then the word void is emptiness. If you talk about the void of space, you mean there's nothing there. There's no content. There's no fullness. And so it's saying the world was formless, no structure, and void, void, no content, no form, no fullness. Think of like flowers in a vase. He's saying there's no form, there's no structure, there's no vase, and there's no fullness. There's no thing inside of it with life. That's what it's saying about the world. The problem in Genesis chapter 1 is formlessness and void, or in Hebrew, tohu and bohu, which sounds like, a, like two clowns, a comedy routine or something, but that's not what it is. That's the problem of Genesis chapter 1, tohu and bohu. No form, no fullness, right? And then you see God enter that scene. And over the top of the chaos, God inserts himself. And he begins to move. And the spirit of God began to hover over the surface of the waters. And then God goes to work. And he says, let there be light. And into the darkness he brings light. And then he begins to move and shape things. And you see by Genesis, uh, the first day of Genesis, what happens? He's turned the lights on. And you have this watery matrix, this molecular watery stuff. He begins to spin it. You get evening and morning, one day, gravitational energy. It begins to rotate. So you've got electromagnetic energy. You've got molecular energy. Now you've got gravitational energy. He begins to spin this watery matrix until what happens? It begins to take form. And as it spins, a surface opens up that he calls air. And then after the air, as he continues to spin it, the water recedes and it forms land. And so now you have the air and you have the sea and you have the land. Everything you need to be a Navy SEAL. Sea, air, and land, right? (laughs) But you see, by the end of day three, that's what he's made. He's made sea, air, and land. What has he done? He went into a watery, chaotic mess and he brought structure. He begins to put the teleological structures in that support life. And then you see in day four, five, and six, it matches days one, two, and three. There's a rhythm to it. That in day one, he created the space and he created air. And then what does he do? He fills space with stars and he fills the air with birds. He created the sea, then he fills the sea with creatures. He created the land and now he fills the land with animals. And you see God has a rhythm to it. What's he doing? He looked out at the world and he saw tohu and bohu. No form, no fullness, no structure, no content. So in the first three days, he built the structures, the teleological structures to support life. Tohu, taken care of. But he didn't build a structure that's stifling and constricting. He built structure that supports life. And so he put life into it, and he solves bohu. And so by the end of six days, what has God done? He's built structure and filled it with content form that has fullness, order for the sake of flourishing. And then in Genesis 2, you get the story again, but it begins to focus more on us. And again, it begins in a negative situation. Genesis 2, 5, it says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. It begins in a negative situation, four no's, no, 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 no. No shrub, no plant, no rain, no man. There's a problem. There's a lack of structure here. And so what happens? God creates a man 
And in Genesis 1.28, it says he created us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That we are meant to be fruitful, to fill it. But in Genesis 2.5, it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To cultivate it and to keep it. What is cultivation? What does it mean to cultivate? God gave them the raw materials and they were meant to do what? Just kind of let it grow wild? No. He was supposed to structure that garden in a way that promotes life. That's what God told Adam to do. I'm giving you raw materials. Step into the rawness of it and then dig some holes in the ground. Run some runs that you can drop seeds into to create flourishing. Build this place in such a situation so that the fruit trees are maximally fruitful. So that that which produces vegetation produces maximum vegetation. Take these things and put structure to it, Adam, but not a stifling structure that steals life. Put a structure in that allows for more flourishing. Flourishing for the world, flourishing for your wife, flourishing for you. Build form that promotes fullness. Build structure that creates room for content, right? Order so that life can flourish. That's what God did, and that's what the man was meant to do. That is what men are supposed to do. That we come into the world and say, how do I build structure where there is none? But not a stifling structure to hold people down. How do I organize my home, organize my office, organize my life? How do I bring order that's conducive to life? That's what a good king does. That's what rulers do. When there is a righteous king, the people rejoice. Why? Because he enacts laws that keep the garden, keep evil out. Laws that restrict and punish the people? No, laws that produce safety so people can build offices, build work, produce goods for their family. When you have a righteous king, the city rejoices. Why? Because the city flourishes under the structure of a good ruler. That's the Old Testament, right? Every Western is about this, right? What happens in every Western movie? There's lawlessness. And in the midst of the lawlessness and chaos, what's happening? Women are being exploited. Children are being killed. People are being hurt because there's lawlessness. Because law don't go around here, right? And then what happens? You need a lawman to come in, right? And slap around some surly bartenders, right? And bring order back, right? To chase out the chaos and to bring law back into our land. Law that stifles? No, law that allows people to flourish. That's every good Western, right? That's every good movie. Lord of the Rings, when evil reigns, death reigns, right? Until the king comes riding out of the wilderness to take his place as a ruler. And the people rejoice a ruler who has healing in his hands. Bring the law, but bring it in a way that produces life. That's what a man does. Do you see that? So that's the sadness of Genesis chapter 3, is that God created the man to care for the woman as they rule the animal realm. And what does Satan do? He comes as an animal to deceive the woman, so she'll lead astray the man. He takes God's order, and he flips it. And what happens? Chaos. Chaos. The ground's not going to work anymore. Adam, it's going to rebel against you. Your relationships between man and woman will now be frustrated. They'll break down. And what happens in the rest of Genesis? Where you see lawlessness increase, you see death reign. That's what you see. 
And as you see the seed of Adam go down the line of Cain, the evil line, what happens? You see chaos. And when men are without law, what happens? Men use their power to exploit. And you see a proliferation of abusing women sexually. And you see violence. Everywhere you see men not fight for law that produces flourishing. You see people taken advantage of. You see death reign. And where you do see them build structure, you get men like Lamech who draw to themselves women and produce violence against other men. You see them take their power as a men to build structure, but structure that produces life? No, structure that takes life. I will take from women. I will take from children. I'll take from you if I can exploit you for my gain. And you see where there is not a godly man, you see either no form, craziness, or you see form that doesn't produce flourishing. It takes, not gives. That's the horror of man in sin. But that's the beauty of the second Adam. When Jesus came in, what did he say? The kingdom of God is here. I'm setting up a new rule. I'm coming as a new king. And is it a kingdom that crushes us? No, look at his kingdom. You come under my kingdom and what happens? I take disease away. I take shame away. I take the things that were stealing life from you away. A perfect picture of it was the Gerasene demoniac. Do you remember that? Jesus pulls up his disciples on the boat and what happens? A naked demon-possessed man comes sprinting at him, right? Because life with Jesus is never boring, right? The disciples are riding with Jesus. Naked demon guy comes running at Jesus. And then Mark gives us the backstory on this guy. What happened? It says this guy was living out among the tombs, among death. He would howl in the night. And what did it say with him? No chains could bind him anymore. It means they used to be able to control him. But he got further and further into darkness. And the further he got into some dark things, and some of you have been exploited by this, you started dabbling with some things you thought would give you life, and they started taking life from you. And you realize some of the things I went in to get good experiences stole from me my mannishness and made me more of an animal. And you see this guy becomes an animal, howling in the night. And when Jesus comes to him, what happens? That man hits the floor. There's no contest between light and darkness. Light wins. And you see, when Jesus takes control of that situation, he casts death out. And what happens? That man is seated, clothed in his right mind. God brings structure back, and it's a structure that promotes life. That's what Jesus came to do. We sing it. His kindly rule has shattered and broken the curse of sin's tyranny. When sin ruled your life, it was tyrannical and leading you to death. When Jesus' kindly rule takes over, he puts structure in our life to bring life. Do you see it? That's what a man does. That's what the God-man did. That's what Moses did. When they left slavery in Egypt, it was a ragtag group of loosely confederated tribes. By the time they marched out of the wilderness, they were all in order around the ark of God, marching in unison, ready to do battle. That's what David did. People who had been tyrannized by a bad king, David consolidated to build a kingdom that was the glory of its day. That's what John Perkins did as he went into the racist south in the 1960s and moved back to the town he could have easily left behind, but he entered into a place where poverty and racism had destroyed this culture, and he helped people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a food co-op. And he went into where chaos and evil was stealing life, and he brought structure that produced life because that's what a man does. I bring form in and then fill it. Structure and then content. Order so that there can be flourishing. That's what we're meant to do.
But if we're honest, many of our lives don't look like this. We look a little more like the garrison demoniac, running around naked screaming, right? If you look at the way we live our life, there's not structure, or it's not filled with the right things. Or maybe it's filled with too many things. Some of us, honestly, we just fill our lives with everything, and we're like an octopus on roller skates. There's a lot of movement, but it's not forward, right? Or some of us, were like a lion. I was reading uh, a book on lion tamers recently, and uh, they were explaining why the stool, you know, which I never understood that. That's what I was reading. I'm like, I'm interested in this. Like, I understand the gun, right? Like, that's if things aren't going well, you got to nut. I understand the whip, you know? But this chair, I never understood the stool. And in this book, they're explaining the reason why they take a stool and hold it up is, is they hold the four corners of the, you know, the legs of the chair towards the lion. And so when they do that, it confuses the lion. Because the lion's trying to focus on all four points coming at him. And as he's trying to focus on all four, it confuses him so he does nothing. And he doesn't do the one thing a lion's built to do, which is eat the soft, chewy, pink guy right in front of him. (laughs) And so at that moment, he's so paralyzed by all the stuff coming at him, he just starts doing random stuff that, you know, little tricks that like a lion's doesn't supposed to do. But what's he going to do? He's confused. And so the clock burns out and a lion doesn't do what a lion does. And a lot of us are like that. Everything comes at us, we get confused. And so we turn the TV on. I know what this does, right? And the clock just runs out. Or we go blazing around through our days. I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And when we're with our kids, we're too busy to be with our kids. We're sitting in our office, we're too busy to focus. We're in a meeting and I'm checking on other meetings. And we're so busy, but it's not moving forward. And it doesn't look like men stepping into their world to build form that produces fullness in life. And some of us, you're structured guys, but your life's filled with too much. You've thrown so many things in your life. You're a structured person, but you've put too much in it, so you're a swamp. And the water has run out in a way that is not life-giving. Others of you are structured, and you have filled your life with the wrong things. And you can fill every minute of the day, but much of it is with stuff that just feeds your pocketbook or your ego, not your kids and not the world. And so we have structure, but we're structured to be takers, not givers. Others of you, maybe you want to be filled with the right things, but you have no structure. You're a young guy that kind of just wakes up and barely makes it to work clothed, right? And you get home and you're so tired, and then at 3 a.m. you're still playing Call of Duty, and you're like, what am I doing, right? And it's just not a lot of structure. So you're not a bad guy, but you're not getting much done. You're like, where's my Bible? Where are my pants? And you just aren't getting it done. And Proverbs 18 says, the one who is slack in his work is brother to the one who destroys. You know, there's people that takes away life, and there's people who don't build structure, and those people also take away life. We are meant to be people who look at our world and say, my God-given directive is to bring structure that promotes life. Life for me, life for my wife, life for my kids, life for the world. How do we do that? Form and then fullness. Does the structure of your day make sense? And what are you filling your time with? I want us to be men who fill our days out of our priorities, not out of proximity. Do you know what I mean? Most of us fill up the moments of our life with proximity, just whatever's nearby. So we check Facebook 400 times, 
or check the internet or check our phones when it's not even ringing. And we just run the clock out doing stuff. But it has nothing to do with the things we would say we're about or hope people will say we were about when we die. And so when we structure our lives, it begins in the house of God right here. It radiates out. What's the right structure for me and then for my family and then for the world? What needs to go in and what needs to go out? And I would challenge you as we look at the structure of our lives as men, what did God, what did God put in the life of the first man? Adam's first day was what? The Sabbath day. I'm going to enjoy God and I'm going to enjoy the only other person that's here, right? And so Adam's first day, what were his first two priorities? God and people, right? And then the next day, go to work on that field, right? But those were the three things he had in that order. God, people, work, right? And God structured it that way, and Adam's meant to engage the world that way, and so were we. So when I look at my day, the first thing I gotta figure out is structuring for me. How do I get to a place for me where I've set my mind on the things of God to stir my affections for God? How do I get to a place where I'm meeting with God? And then how do I meet in a healthy way with people? And then how do I go about my work? But when I look at my own life, one of the most helpful things that has helped me is I heard someone say, when you look at your life, you gotta work on it and not just in it. On it and not just in it. So many of us just work within our schedules. And we never stop to evaluate whether we're doing the right things. It's like driving a car in NASCAR. You can't fix it while you're driving. I think a tire flew off. Can someone fix it at 100 miles an hour? No. You got to stop and work on the car and then work in it. And so for me, about every six months, I just take a day and I sit and I work on my schedule. Does my weekly calendar reflect who I say I am under God? And so for me, I look at it and go, what has to move? What has to change? And at different times in my life, different things have landed different places. In college, a quiet time first thing in the morning wasn't really working for me. I couldn't stay conscious. So I built it around my class schedule so I'd make it in there every day. Now I know my children wake up at 8 a.m., right? Or usually sometimes 7 a.m. And so I realized if I wake up at 7 a.m. when my kids wake up, the first thing in the morning being, ah, daddy, starts the day all wrong. And I realized I'm not the man of God I want to be with my kids if I start my day with their screaming. So for the sake of my children, my devotional time now comes early. And so it was at 5, now by the grace of God they sleep in, I get up at 6, Right? And so I know I've got to meet with the Lord at 6 to be the kind of man I want to be when my family wakes up. Get up at 6, right? And I do that. And then when I'm done with that, I go work out because I realized in the past I would get really busy and not take care of my body, and that was one of the reasons I broke it. And God broke my body, and now I realized if I don't take care of myself, everybody loses. And so I read the Word of God, I take care of my body, and then when I come in it, uh, I can have breakfast with my kids and I lead them in a devotional time in the morning because I want them to remember their dad teaching them the word of God first thing in the morning. I want that for them, right? And so I realized in order to get up that early and to be the man I want to be that morning, I have to go to bed on time. So I go, I want to put these things in my life and my life's so full, so what goes out? And I realized I can't take anything else out at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. And so I back it up and go, I've got to sleep this long to be conscious for these moments. And so guess what that means? That means no more iPad in bed. 
because it just keeps me up later than I want to be, doing nothing. And so looking at nothing is stealing the thing I want to be about in life. So nothing loses. And then I realized, and that means i got to get rid of cable. Oh, no, God. <laughs> and I realized cable's not evil. Some of you have cable, and I'm not saying all godly men get rid of it, but I'm saying for me, I would look up at the clock, and it'd be midnight, and I was watching, I don't know, what I was watching. And I realized that was stealing from me the mornings with God. And if I'm going to live my life by priority rather than proximity, whatever's nearest, i got to meet with God before I meet with my kids. That's the non-negotiable. So guess what, cable? You lose. And iPad, you lose. And it was hard, and I mourned over it. We had a little ceremony. It was great. But <laughs> I wake up, and I'm the kind of man I want to be. And I go to work feeling like the kind of man I want to be. And that's a powerful feeling to go into work with. And I've realized for me to flourish under God, I've got to meet with other men. And so there's a night that's sacred that my wife doesn't ever try to schedule over because she knows that's when Ben's in the backyard with two other guys and we meet together and we confess everything and we pray for each other on our knees because when I walk out of that moment, I feel secure and I feel strong, strong in God, strong in community, and I need that. And so I begin to put the things in my life that I know I need to be the man who flourishes under God. What's the structure that allows me to flourish? I start with me. Why? So I can be the kind of man I'm supposed to be when it comes to my wife and kids. That's what a man's supposed to do. What needs to go into your life now to put structure in that produces life? What needs to come out? And then for me, it radiates out to my wife. And I look at her and go, what does my wife need to flourish some of you, your wife's always mad at you or frustrated with you and always angry. It's because the way you're leading the house is not conducive for her to live or flourish. She's existing. You're feeding her. But you're not creating the structure in the home that produces life for her. And I realized for me, if I want my wife to flourish under God, have I created the structure in this house that allows my wife to flourish? And I realized that means I've got to change some things. That means when I come home at 5 o'clock, I don't come home and just turn on the TV. Or I don't come home and do whatever I want. Our kids are little and intense. And so I used to go home and sit, and my wife would give me an hour to kind of rest, collect myself, and then we would hang out. But now that we have three kids under three, I can't do that anymore. Now my rest time is my one-mile drive to home. I go, please, God, have mercy. And then I sit in my driveway, and I'm like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, and then I go. And I know... From five to seven, it's on. And I'm throwing kids in the air and I'm running around with them in the yard to give my wife a minute to breathe inside. And it's game time for me with the kids that I want to be fully present in their life. And then at seven o'clock, she takes them to go bathe. And then that's when I sit down and go, oh, oh gosh. Uh, and at 7.30, I hear, Daddy! And I'm like, I'm there. And so I go up there and I read the Bible with them and pray before they go to bed. Right? And I know giving my wife that two-minute window helps her not be angry, bitter, and sad and depressed. And that's good for everybody. Okay? <laughs> I've realized for me, she can't read the Bible at home with the kids in a way that's in any way conducive to anything. <laughs> so I've realized for my wife to be spiritually alive and not wither on the vine. Two mornings a week, I'm paying for a babysitter to come over. And two mornings a week, a girl comes over at eight, she takes the kid, and I told my wife, because my wife was, would just keep working. She's not doing this. I'm the one who has to build the structure. Not because she's not capable, but because she's a soldier and she'll just push till she falls. 
but I have to watch my wife and say, it's my charge under God as a man to build structure in our house so she flourishes. And I came to her and I said, I see that you're getting weary and discouraged. What if we bring a sitter Mondays and Fridays and you take off for an hour and go sit at Starbucks, just you and God? And she's like, I can't do that. It's too busy. I'm like, no, it'll be fine. The kids are going to survive for an hour. They don't need you. You'll be a better human being when you come back to the kids. Why don't you do that? And she started crying and said, thank you. And I'm like, you know what? It's worth it for me, that expenditure of money for her to come back more alive. And the house, kids are flourishing, and Donna's flourishing, and I'm flourishing, right? Because I've taken up the role of a man. And I'm not trying to present myself as a hero. We could go on and on about all the ways I've done this really poorly. But I would challenge you to look at your life and go, if my charge under God is to put structure in so that there's flourishing, how am I doing at that? And I would challenge you every six months or so to reevaluate because life changes. I sat with a buddy the other day, and he was talking about how he and his wife are getting not getting along, and he was naming all these presenting issues, the stuff they weren't getting along with. And I stopped at one moment and said, just tell me about y'all's week. And he told me about their week, and he's a super outgoing personality, super bubbly guy, gets, gets his energy, gets his adrenaline rush off people. And I stopped him for a minute, and I said, I, I just want to point out something to you. Did you know that you've planned weekly events every night of the week? And he was like, huh, I guess I have. And I was like, yeah, and your wife's an introvert. I said, don't take this the wrong way, man. But if I was her, I would either have a gun to my head or yours. <laughs> I said, you have not given her any space to breathe. And you're wondering what's wrong with her. And he just stopped and was like, dude, you're totally right. And I was making this about how I thought you were rude to this. But I thought, and I'm like, you know your wife, what she needs. Are you giving her that? And so that's my whole point now is saying, man, God wants us destroying sin. God's a destroyer of sin. That was last night. But God is a builder of structure that brings life. And we're meant to be builders. So what goes in and what comes out? And I want to challenge you to look at that. Some of you, your addictions to pornography will go away. And for many of you, what it will mean is that you start going to bed earlier. And because even something that simple of more sleep when we're tired, we have much more we have to confess and repent of. Some of you, your greatest battle against sin will be prioritizing sleep, which will mean turn the screens off. The average American in the world today, 2014, spends seven and a half hours a day in front of a screen. I read that last month, and it just I was like, that can't be right. And then I was reading it, and it said in front of an iPhone, computer, laptop, tablet. And I realized, I'm at seven and a half. Easy. And I thought... It makes sense. You can rationalize that. Yeah, I mean, it's about right. Seven and a half hours in front of a screen. And then I just stopped and was like, but do I want that to be true of me? When they look back at Ben's life, they go, yeah, man, he spent, you know, 50, 60% of his waking hours just right in front of that screen, man. And we loved that about him. Like, do I want that to be true of me at my funeral? And I decided no. And so there are moments in front of a screen and I don't feel guilty about it. There's a little screen right here I'm reading so I can read you the Bible and I don't feel bad about it. But I've looked at other moments in my life and said, you know what, when I get home from work, I just put the phone away because I don't want my kids to have to feel like they fight the phone for daddy's attention. I was talking with a buddy about this the other day and he came back and he's like, dude, he's like our three-year-old was acting crazy the other day. He said, when we finally asked her, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting out like this? They said, go play with something. And she said, I don't have anything to pl anyone to play with. And then she said, maybe if you'd put down your phone, you could play with me. 
And he said, my three-year-old said that. And it was like, Ugh. And he said, she was right. And I realized, I don't need it. And there's something weird in our heads that says that. You got to check, you got to do that, you got to do that. And, and the challenge of a man is to question those voices. Don't believe everything that you think and go, do I need to check email at five o'clock? No, I don't. Is anything they have to say to me more important than me promoting the flourishing of my kids right now? No, there is not. So in the name of Jesus, put the phone away, right? Or go home and be fully present with them. Take control of your schedule. Don't be a victim of your schedule. Be the leader and master over it. God made you to rule. Rule in a way that produces structure so that they're flourishing for yourself, for your kids, for your work. That's what a good leader does. That's why this is a good church. Because what does a good church do? I build structure so people can flourish. What does a good leader do? I hire people and I make sure, do you have everything you need to flourish as a youth pastor? Have I resourced you in a way that you can flourish as a worship leader? Have I given you what it takes to flourish as a men's leader? A good leader does that. Have I given my people what they need to flourish? Have I built the structure that promotes life? I can't make them live, but I can build the structure that promotes life for them. And a good leader does that. A good church does that. And so we do it for ourselves, we do it for our families, and then we do it for the world. We step out into the world and say, where is the fabric of society breaking? I will come in as a reweaver. Where is the society, fabric of society crumbling? I will come in as a builder. Where is the world falling apart? I will bring structure so that the world will have life. That's what we're meant to do. So we found out, uh, well, let me say it this way. Uh, I, um, two Two summers ago, not this summer, but last summer, I stood in the front yard of a house and I was standing in the front yard of this house with a bunch of men. And we were men from different churches, different organizations, different ministries, different backgrounds, different jobs. Some of us full-time vocational ministry, some of us construction workers, business owners, different stuff. And we were standing in the yard of this house because we had discovered that Houston, Texas is one of the hubs of sex trafficking in the United States. Trafficking of girls, selling them for sex. It's more lucrative than selling money because you can keep selling the girl. And that's happening in Houston. Houston has a reputation for that. And we went, that's horrible. That's not right. And we looked at that and there's a lot of girls that are underage that when the cops pick them up, there's no parent looking for them. There's no one to call. And they're not 18, they're underage, and so where do they go? There's no one looking for them because no one cares about their life. Men just want to take from them. No one wants to give them life. And so there was a family that said, if no one wants these girls, we'll take them. We'll take them. Problem with that family is they didn't have any money. And so some people said, we have land. And a home builder said, and I know how to build houses. And I ran a college ministry and said, I can't build a house. I, I, can't, build, I can't build an Ikea desk. <laughs> I said, but I can mobilize young people. And we can get that room for the college students to raise the money to furnish that home, to put beds in that home that are safe. 
bedrooms in that place covered in Bible verses. We can build a home where these girls can flourish as human beings under God. And we did it. Raised a couple, couple thousand dollars and made it happen. Amen. And so a group of men stood in that front yard of a home that we had bought, paid for, built, furnished, led, counseled, discipled so these girls could live. And I looked at that and said, that's what a man does. A man enters this world and says, where is life being taken? Where is life being stolen? Where are people being dehumanized? I will step in for the glory of God by his power and be the kind of man I need to be. That's why I read the words of God. Be the kind of man I need to be. That's why I confess sin to my brothers so sin doesn't destroy me in the dark so that I will be strong. That's why I fight against sin and get his word into me so I can be a man that as I enter into my family, I make decisions as a man to engage with my wife and kids in a way that they have structure where they can flourish. And then when I step out the doors of my house, I go, I am a man under God charged in Genesis to build structure so this world will flourish. So the hurt women of this world will rise up because of us. In the early church back in Rome, girls were seen in an absorption of wealth. They didn't have abortion in the Roman Empire. So what you would do is you would lay that baby girl out to die of exposure in the streets. Or a pimp would go by and, and just pick them up. The early church abhorred that. They said, that little girl has dignity. And so they didn't just sit and write blogs about how much Roman culture sucks. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> they said, if you won't give life to these girls, we will. And if you were to walk into one of the first gatherings of the early church, you would be greeted by the voice of singing little girls, praising God because godly men brought them into structure where they could flourish because that's what a man does. And at the end of all things, God takes us back, not to a garden, but to a city. Did you see that? A city. That we have the tree of life in the middle of it, and we have structure that we're a part of building. Structure that brings life. God has called us into his glorious creation. We're creators along with God, builders along with God, not of stifling order, but order that brings life. And so I just want to challenge you as you walk out of here to ask yourself that question. God, to be the man you've made me to be, what do I put in my life that's not in it now? What do I take out? Because God, by your grace and for your glory, I will be a man who puts structure into this world so that me, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, my ministry, my city flourishes for your glory and my good. Amen. Let me pray for us. Well, Lord, I want to thank you that God, when you saw the darkness and the chaos, when the world had descended into sadness and into madness, Jesus came descending in the night to this planet. And he broke through the dark as a light. And he said, I'm building a new kingdom. This place is broken. And I'm building a kingdom. Because I'm a king and I rule. But I'm not ruling in a way that stifles and oppresses people. I'm ruling in a way that makes the blind see and the lame walk and the dead rise. Thank you that we follow a God-man that took all that power and used it not to take but to give, and in doing that, purchased for us life, that we moved from darkness to light, from death to life, because the God-man got us.
And we rejoice in that. And we rejoice that we belong to him. And now God, as godly men made in your image, God, and made brothers and co-heirs with Christ, may we take up our role as men to be builders and shapers of our culture. That people could say, when I come into your home, there's a peace here. When I look into your wife's eyes, I see someone that you're doing all you've done to help her flourish under God. Your kids, your workplace, your city. God, I pray that we would look at our own lives and say, where am I doing things that really have no strategic purpose at all? And may I cast them out. Some of them are evil things and some of them aren't evil. They're just, they just have no place in my life at this stage. God, give us a vision now of what needs to go out. And God, give us a vision of what needs to come in. May we be men that dwell deep in your word because it's the blessed man is the one who meditates on the word of God day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. If we want to flourish, we need your word. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. If we're going to love and do good, we need men to spur us on. Show us in our week how to put the words of God and the people of God into our life. And then God, establish the work of our hands that we'd be engineers building structure that produces life. We'd be designers that are designing rooms and spaces that produce life. We'd be leaders that conduct organizations in a way that brings life. We'd be Bible study leaders and small group leaders that breathe life into people. We'd be husbands and dads and friends that breathe life. God, may we be what you made us to be. Thank you for making it possible through the gracious work of Jesus for us to step into our God-given glory of being men. Men that live with you and men that bring life to others. Form and fullness, structure and flourishing, order for life. Let that be our story for now and for forever. In Jesus' name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from the 2015 Man Up Men's Retreat hosted by Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope this message has been encouraging to you and pray you have a great day.